This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Yes, good morning again. I see uh, many of you were here last time, and uh, probably we have some new ones, do we? All right, we have several that are, are here for the first time. We're, we're going to be dealing, in our first session, we dealt with my experience as a seven-year-old child. I committed what the devil told me was the unpardonable sin. And for eight years, I struggled to uh, gain assurance that I could be saved. And by the way, that the issue of that being saved was even greater than normal because I knew from the earliest childhood that I was called to be a minister. And therefore, I had no earthly plans and no heavenly plans <laughs> and no assurance of, of, of heaven and no idea what I would be doing here, because if I couldn't be saved, I couldn't certainly serve effectively as a minister. So we're going to be talking about the mountaintop that I've just talked with you about, came down to despair again. Now, that mountaintop experience, for those few who weren't here, were a result of my having spent an hour every morning and an hour every evening with Desire of Ages at 15 years of age. And uh, that was a wonderful mountaintop experience. But it wasn't very long before I had a problem. I couldn't stay awake. You remember? Those of you who were here will remember that I was setting my clock at 2.45 in the morning to be at the barn, uh, that is to have an hour of study and be in the barn by four. And uh, then uh, I had to, as soon as I came back from school, I had to go into the barn and worked until about eight. And that meant that I had very short nights. So it should not have been, uh, it was not an unusual thing that I had a hard time staying awake when I was trying to pray. But that caused me a great deal of depression again because God had spoken to me and now I can't even stay awake. And I would wake myself up and drop off to sleep almost immediately over and again and uh, was very depressed as a result of that. What I needed was an understanding of continuing saving grace. Saving grace is not just something that we have when we're up. It's something we have when we look to Christ instead of ourselves. I could no more maintain an experience than I could gain it without Christ. And you recall, I had come to the bottom before I was ready to, to hear God's word and to, to trust and to uh, accept him, what he was showing me. But there's no way to maintain that experience except as we depend on him. So God had much to teach me. And uh, that was a very important thing for him to allow me to struggle through this. And perhaps that was one of the important factors that he had in mind in calling for me to set my clock as early as 2.45 when I wouldn't be able to retire until at least 9 at night, which gave me very little time. This particular morning... I had had more trouble staying awake. And by the way, some mornings and some evenings I was alert and 
able to to commune with him. But uh, on this day, I could not stay awake. No matter what I did, I tried to do so. Uh, when I got to the barn, the cows were not in the barn. Now, cows were milked regularly, and uh, we were milking regularly every day. When cows are milked regularly, they're there usually because they want to be relieved uh, of the pressure of the milk, which by that time has reached to its maximum. And so when I got there, I had to go look for the cows. As I went to look for the cows, I'll never forget it, I was so deeply depressed, but there were stars, many stars in the sky. It was full of stars. And so as I walked out toward the pasture where I would find the cows, I felt so heavy, it felt like my feet would actually sink into the ground. And I walked along and I looked at the stars and I said, Oh God, who made the stars? If there's any help for me, let me know. That was my prayer. And immediately, he let me know. And I felt almost as light as a feather. I felt just as light, that is the extreme sense of lightness was as, as great as the sense of heaviness before. I'll never forget running to get the cows. I felt like I was flying. I don't know if I broke all records or not, but it seemed as though I was not, my feet hardly touched the ground, and I was on there. There was enough light so I could see fairly well. At any rate, it was, it was a wonderful experience, and I knew that God had answered my prayer. It was a very definite answer. The cows were there. They came back when I called them. <laughs> and uh, I was able to do the milking and cleaning up afterward. And that cleanup took more time than the milking uh, because I had uh, uh, electric milkers. And you have to uh, spend a lot of time scrubbing those things when you get through. At any rate, uh, that was a a high point again. God is good to give us signals when we need it. But he is also good enough to leave us to learn what it means to live by faith. Living by faith is not feeling. Now the experience of, of joy and and lightness and so forth is wonderful, and it gave me assurance. But that is not an evidence of faith. A person who is not in communion with God may very well have a strong emotional feeling that they're in the right. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. So God was good to me to give me some signals and I appreciated those, but I had to learn to go beyond those signals. I, he was trying to teach me to trust him no matter how I felt and no matter what the circumstances were. So I needed continuing faith in total saving grace. Brothers and sisters, that is what you need as well. Remember that we cannot do anything to save ourselves, whether it's before or after conversion. Before conversion, that was my experience for eight years. But when I was converted, I was no stronger myself than I was before. But in Christ, I was stronger. I had courage. I had faith. And I was able to gain victories that I had been defeated on over and over again. The 
main thing that I had struggled with for years was novels. And uh, I was kind of like uh, uh, Mark Twain, who said it's uh, not hard to quit smoking. I've done it a thousand times. And that was me, with me, it was not so hard. It wasn't easy anyway. But as soon as I finished one novel, I was finished. I quit until the next novel. And then I had to quit after that one. And then after the other one. Now, after I began to commune with God, I didn't need novels. As a matter of fact, why I was addicted to novels was precisely what God was trying to do for me in the right way. I was doing it in the wrong way. He wanted to give me meaning. He wanted to give me something that would, would uh, help me deal with life itself. And novels do nothing to give you the right kind of understanding of life or to give you the meaning that you need in life. But when you commune with God through the Holy Spirit, then it is that there is true meaning in life. And you don't need novels. I didn't need them. And I had no temptation to even uh, uh, read novels. Of course, with the pro program I had from 2.45 uh, in the morning, didn't give me very much time for that. But nevertheless, when you're addicted, you, you carry on those addictions no matter what. And I was in a position where I needed to know how to live from day to day with assurance. Now, what was my assurance? My assurance was simple. I didn't understand it verbally at the time, but it became clear to me. I mentioned before that I learned the principles of Minneapolis before I knew of what Minneapolis was. And uh, the fact is, I'll talk to you a little bit later about, about what Minneapolis means. But uh, the principles of Minneapolis, brothers and sisters, are Christ is our only righteousness. Not simply Christ is our righteousness, but there is no other. And unless we are trusting his righteousness, no matter what we do, we are not in the right relationship with him. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. I needed to believe in his saving grace no matter how I felt. And so it was that God was bringing me through these experiences to understand that which cannot be understood except through the experience of it. And those who hear the message of Minneapolis, which we will discuss a little bit later, those who hear the principles and do not experience them do not know what they hear. And they cannot appreciate them as they should and as they would if they experienced it. It is, by the way, Minneapolis is not a theology. It's an experience. And we may be able to discuss theologically, but it is an experience. Without the experience, it doesn't matter what theology we have, we're not going to know it. It's impossible to know except by experience. Now, I've shared with you about feeling as light as a feather. We go back to that now. I was now bringing the cows in from behind, and they were in front of me, heading to the barn with rejoicing. I was feeling very thankful. I was sensing the presence of God. But brothers and sisters, if we trust him only when we feel his presence, we'll cease to trust him. And what he has to bring us through is sufficient experiences that we will realize that we do not have to feel his presence. But when we claim his promises, 
instead of making our promises to him. Then it is that we learn what it is to live by faith. Abraham lived by faith. That afternoon, as I had, had come back, it had rained all day. And I came back and started getting ready for the evening. I had to do the cattle before the milk, milk cows. I had to feed them and clean off the, the manure from the pad where they would be eating. Have you ever tried shoveling manure after it had rained for hours? It's no longer manure, it's water and manure and all of mixed mix together. And you shovel and shovel and you can't, it takes a huge amount of time to get it all off because it's just water. And so it was that I was there shoveling manure that same day and depressed. Why was I depressed? Well, I probably was depressed because I had so little sleep. There were various things that could depress me. But I was depressed because I was no longer feeling the presence of God. That was the real issue. And now I begin to question whether God accepts me or not. The fact is that this was an experience that God deliberately allowed me to have because I needed it. And so it was that as I, I uh, shoveled that manure, I kept thinking, now what have I done today that would cause God to, be, uh, to not approve of me? I couldn't think of anything that I had done. And so I began to reason. I was accepted by God this morning. I have done nothing today uh, that I know of that has, could displease him. I must still be accepted. He has promised to accept me and Therefore, I will uh, claim that acceptance. And so I did. I claimed God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ by faith. And when I did, then my depression left me. Brothers and sisters, God does not want us to live in depression. He wants us to live in faith. And when we learn to live in faith, we may be depressed at times because there are various things that can depress a person that have nothing to do with spiritual issues. There may be a question of much lack of sleep, which was certainly true with me. But the fact is that no matter whether we're exhausted and no matter whether we feel good or bad, we have the same righteousness we can claim. And when we try to prove ourselves, see, my, I, I, had, I had to relearn new habits. My habit had been for eight years to worry uh, because I don't have the assurance of God's acceptance. Now he has shown me that he has accepted me. Now what right do I have of questioning him now? Is it's a question of faith. And that faith has nothing to do with our emotions. Our emotions may be quite negative, but that does not need to affect our relationship to Christ. Our relationship to Christ is simple. Do I accept his promises? Whereby are given to us exceeding and great, great and precious promises that by these we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 1 Peter 
1.4. Now, brothers and sisters, we have to, to make the decision. What are we going to trust our own promises or are we going to trust his promises? My promises to God, I, by the way, I didn't learn all of the lessons that I needed and a few easy lessons. It took me quite a while. In fact, I'm still learning. But the fact is that the just shall live by faith. Now, there were various other lessons that God taught me in learning how to study his word. And one is never to study the Bible without prayer. We have two, two different, totally opposite powers that are seeking to direct us in our Bible study. We need to know that. Satan is just as interested as God is in our method of studying the Bible. As a matter of fact, Satan is eager to use whatever truth we have to confuse us by mixing it with some kind of error. And he will do that. If we are studying the Bible without depending on him, then we're depending on ourselves and there is no more possibility that we can understand when depending on ourselves than, it, than initially to uh, uh, gain our experience without him. In other words, our understanding is dependent upon him as well as our uh, experience in dealing with temptation. So never study the Bible without prayer. And then something else he taught me early on, and that is that truth is singular and Everything I believe must harmonize with everything else I believe. It is when there are two things that I believe that don't coordinate that God is telling me that I have not understood the issue. Every element of truth harmonizes with all other elements of truth. And so it is that... Uh, I also had to understand the opposite as well, and that is error is plural. Truth is singular. If you have any element of truth, that truth followed through faithfully will lead you to other truth and will never lead you to error. But error is plural. It does not need to harmonize. In fact, when you're talking with people about the Seventh-day Sabbath, they first of all may tell you, well, the law is done away with. And you show them that the law could not be done with, and that God assures us that it is not done away with. What is the next thing they do? Well, the, the, yes, so they say, well, Jesus changed the day. When you show them that he did not change the day, they still have another argument, and that is that the apostles changed the day. So it doesn't matter uh, to them. They, their, their own arguments to you are inconsistent within themselves, but they don't need to be. When error does not need any harmony. As a matter of fact, error, by its very nature, is disharmonious. So it was an important thing for me to understand that truth is singular. Error is plural. You don't need to expect any harmony in error. It can have as many uh, contrasts and contradictions, but uh, it, those who hold it will still, no matter which one you correct, they'll still have another one. Now, Truth is also determined by the creator. There is nothing truth that God did not create. Cre truth is really a way of explaining God's 
way of thinking through creation. When we see creation, our minds are drawn immediately to the need to be drawn to the creator. And what we see in creation helps us to understand the mind of the creator because that is what his thinking is. That's what truth is. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. Christ himself is the truth. And when we deal with truth, we need to always deal with it in the light of Christ, with a focus on Christ. Any truth, Sabbath truth or any other truth, that we do not view in the light of Christ ceases to be true. Because it is when Christ, the truth, the truth, is not seen as the point of, of individual truths, then we do not understand what, what truth may be plainly stated, but we still do not understand it unless we understand it with relationship to Christ. And this, by the way, is what Minneapolis is all about. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is the nature. He is the, the source of all truth. And when we want to understand truth, we need to understand him. We need to focus upon him. This is the Minneapolis message that we are to understand life itself in the light of Christ and him crucified. And our theme throughout this week really is Christ crucified. We are to be thinkers and not re mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. I was uh, still a teenager about the time of my conversion when I my mind was focused on Ellen White's statement that we must become thinkers and not reflectors of other men's thoughts. Well, how do we become thinkers? When you go to school, what are you doing? You're, you're learning to think. But what most people do is to listen to what the teacher says and seek to be able to regurgitate it in a time, a quiz or, or a test of some kind. The fact is, to become a thinker requires something more than listening to a teacher. And I discovered some of those things when I was still a young person. Uh, I didn't think of it in terms of a pyramid then, so I don't want you to think that I, all of these terms were necessarily in my mind as the things I've been sharing with you. It's the experience of the youth and the experience of old age that come together for understanding. But at any rate, I liken truth to a pyramid. Uh, There are building blocks that we will see. There's a baseline here. Every one of those triangles represents truth. Each would be some different facet of truth. But what we need to do is to learn how to connect everything we are studying with everything else we're studying so that what we understand and one is related to how we understand the other. And those then must be related to this second level of triangles that I've shared here. Each of those are interconnected so that you have an interconnection. The two base ones and the one on top are all interrelated and the ones on the top are interrelated with each other and also the base ones. Oh, oh, yes, yes. Isn't it doing it? 
This thing is not, it keeps going to sleep on me. Oh, we didn't have it until just then. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Now, I want to come back to what I was saying. There is no truth that is not related to other truth. And any one truth is related in some way, directly or indirectly, to all other truth. And this is the way I had of visualizing it, that you have your baseline, that's what you begin with, you learn your ABCs, and if you are in an arithmetic class, you have to relate the addition to the subtraction, multiplication to the division, and uh, relating each of these only when you understand the relationship of one to another do you understand what you're dealing with with any one of them. So that truth must be interlocked. And the way we are assured of moving in the line of truth is that there's complete harmony between all of our building blocks. And then on the second line, there must be harmony. And then uh, on the third and fourth line. And then if these are placed together, you have another triangle. Brothers and sisters, we prove truth by examining its relationship to other proven truth. So that no matter what happens, we have all kinds of heresies and confusions today. But we don't have to get involved in them if we keep in mind that truth is singular. And what you have established already in God's word as truth, he is the authority of truth. Christ is truth, his word is truth. When we have established the authority of Christ in any given area, we can then move from that to the areas around and until we come to a place where there's dissonance, where there's no connection, then if that's the case, then we know there's something wrong. We have to go back again and re-examine these and, until we have a harmony on the baseline and in all other levels as well. As a matter of fact, this is how you become a thinker. And uh, when you're in, in class, Many of you, are, I see, are older than the youth uh, that I assumed I'd be talking to. But when you're in class, it's good to listen carefully to the teacher. But never take anything the teacher take, uh, says as necessarily proven truth. The teacher could be wrong. And even if he is right, you need to arrive at the same conclusion yourself. And so you need to be able, whatever you're studying, and it was while I was still in a secondary school that God taught me that I should relate everything I studied to everything else I studied. And that means that if I'm in a history class, I need to understand it in relation to the Bible classes. And the Bible classes in, in relationship to science and so forth. So all of these need to come together. And if we learn to be thinkers, we're not going to be swept away by delusions. Uh, there are many different ways for people to develop philosophies that appear to be un, uh, unprovable. They appear to be solid. But then you have another one that's very different, and it also appears that way. We have to learn to go back down to the baseline and re-examine everything down to the baseline. And that means the ABCs. That means learning how to check things out, and then we can build up again, and, and these 
This will keep us on the track of truth. Now, another thing that the Lord showed me during this process was the paradoxical nature of truth. I was in my second year of college at Pacific Union College when I found a book on Bible paradoxes. If I remember right, it was Arthur Beats who wrote that book. I became fascinated with it. Uh, and the, the paradoxes he dealt with were, to a large degree, were external paragraphs, uh, paradoxes, which, such as he that would save his life must lose it. The first will be last, the last will be first. These are obvious paradoxes, and a paradox, by the way, is not contradiction. It's apparent contradiction, something that appears to be a contradiction, which is really not contradictory. There are principles that are involved that require each one of them. But at any rate, I read that book, and as a result of reading that book, my mind was stimulated to examine the nature of truth itself. I discovered, for my satisfaction, and I've never discovered anything yet that, is that has proven it wrong, and that is that all truth is paradoxical. And that means that truth is balanced. It has two legs. Well, by the way, my, my legs are paradoxical. They may appear to be going in opposite directions, but in reality, they're working together. And as I move one foot forward, the other one always goes back. And then I move the other forward, this one goes back. But this is a, an essential process. When we are moving our arms. We usually move them one way or opposite to each other. When we want to pick something up, we come against them. Each hand comes the opposite way to grasp what we're picking up. A box of books or such I carried this morning uh, or whatever it is. But truth is paradoxical. And that means that... Uh, it has two legs that move together to the top. Now, the first one, the most essential principles of the paradox are grace and faith and law and obedience. Now, from the beginning of Christianity, there have been conflicts over law and grace. The fact is that they appear to be in contradiction. But they are not. But the one thing we do need to understand, and this is what God taught me, and that is that law and grace unite in Christ. They don't unite just somewhere. They unite in Christ. He is the source. He is the... the uh, epitome of, of grace and law. In, if we understand either one of them correctly, it has to be in Christ. And when we understand them in Christ, they unite. There cannot be a conflict between them because Christ unites all truth. Now, if those truths are not united, then we have no power. And this is the problem of Christianity generally, is that we have little power. If we have, uh, and I have, I thought I had some other uh, illustrations here, which I don't, I didn't get in here. But if we do not unite in Christ, then it's the union between the physical, human, and the divine that gives us power. And without that union, there is no power. And that's what I was being taught my eight years. I 
did not have these united. I did not even know how to claim God's grace because I didn't know if I could because I had sinned against the Holy Spirit. At least that's what Satan kept trying to make me believe. And through all those eight years, God gave me enough assurance to keep me from giving up completely. And that, but I never had any real assurance. But when we recognize that how law and grace meet, and this was the Minneapolis message, by the way. There was no discussion of, of things in the particular way that I am discussing them, but that was the issue, was the union of God's law and man's obedience through the power of Christ. You see, Minneapolis really starts with defeat. We have to start our Christian life with defeat because there's no way for us to, to, to gain the victory ourselves. So we begin by recognizing that we cannot do anything. We cannot approve ourselves to God. We must recognize that we are helpless and we are totally dependent upon his grace for anything we do. And when we are sufficiently aware of our own uncleanness, uh, aware of our own uh, sinfulness, when we are sufficiently aware of the fact there's nothing we can do about it, then we have one hope, and that is to go to him. But that is our hope. He is our only hope. And when we turn to him in faith, we can receive that which we cannot provide and that which we can never discover outside of Christ. And again, going back to the pyramids, one truth connected with another and no matter how high the, the level they're all connected, and if they're not connected, any disconnect is a disconnect from him who is truth. So Christ intends for us all through our life to be learning more and more how to connect one part of truth with another by looking to him who is truth. We will discuss the priesthood of believers a little later, but I want to tell you about the uh, reason I have it here. When I discovered the paradoxical nature of truth, I discovered the answer to the questions and doctrines issue. I didn't know anything about questions and doctrines. It had not been published when I discovered the paradoxical nature of truth, but it, it was just about that time that Questions on Doctrines was published. Now, how many of you do not know what we're talking about, Questions on Doctrines? A few of you. Questions on Doctrines was a book written in 1957. The purpose of that book was to provide a basis for uh, Martin to, uh, to write a book on Adventism and have a reference that everyone would agree to is Adventist, that is, represents Adventist views. Because when Walter Martin was commissioned to write a book on the Adventist heresy, but what wasn't very long after he got to the Washington, D.C. and to our General Conference headquarters, he asked if he could have access to our files and so forth that told him what he was doing and the brethren agreed to that and he also requested the help of some of our men including Leroy Froome uh, to help make sure that he understood things correctly and so forth so 
the very first meeting between Froome and company and Martin and, and the uh, Greek uh, scholar that came with him. And their very first meeting, and then at the close of that meeting, each gave materials to the other to study. But Martin recognized immediately that Adventism was not a heresy. He recognized that the things that he thought we believed, we didn't believe. He thought we were uh, depending on the Sabbath for our salvation, for one thing. And by the way, some Adventists have been depending on the Sabbath for their salvation, but that is a heresy, and it is a false idea. There is no way for us to become saved by keeping the Sabbath or by any other doctrine. So it was that Martin asked our men, could you have a book, could you prepare a book that deals with these questions? And he had a whole list of questions. And you answer that book, uh, those questions in that book, then I can refer to the book as the authority for what I'm saying. Because most people believed that Adventists were legalists. And by the way, I have demonstrated to you this morning that I was a legalist. I don't know if you caught that, but that was I was explaining a legalistic experience. I had no power. I was depending on my efforts to be good enough for God to accept. This is legalism. Now, I cannot be good enough for God to accept, but he's good enough to accept me if I accept him by faith. And it's my trust in his goodness that results in righteousness by faith. It's his righteousness that I claim. It's his righteousness and his righteousness alone that will be the ticket to pass me through the judgment. If I have his righteousness, I already am certain of being passed. If I do not, then I am certain of not making it. So it is the righteousness of Christ. And I would like to take a moment now to share with you about specifically about Minneapolis. I'll be referring to it again and discussing it more specifically. But Minneapolis was a meeting uh, that took place in 1888 in the city of Minneapolis, a general conference meeting where truth was presented by E.J. Wagner. And that truth we talk about as being the Minneapolis principles, our Minneapolis message was presented in 1888. And that message was simply that Christ crucified is what we should focus on, and it is Christ who died for our sins. When Christ died, he died for my sins, not his own. Christ had no sins. But when he died, he died for my sins, for your sins, for his sins and her sins. When he arose from the grave, he did not rise with my power, he rose with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that rising was with victory over sin. He lived a whole life without sinning. He died for my sins and rose with victory over sin to share with me so that his righteousness becomes mine by faith. I do not have to... I, it's not that I feel like I have his righteousness. If I feel like I have his righteousness, it's very well I'm, for good idea for me to realize that I probably don't have. Because Christ's righteousness is not something we feel. It's something we claim by faith. And we claim it when we don't feel like it. And that was something that it took me a long time to learn. I had to, first of all, experience conversion and realize that Christ had taken my guilt and my sins. 
and trust in them, then I had to realize that I still was as helpless as before, except by his grace. So I had to depend on the same righteousness for my life as I lived it from day to day as for my conversion. And uh, we're told by Ellen White that if we lose sight of Christ or feel like we are lost, that we go back to where we first saw the light. That's where we begin again, where we saw the light. And that light which I saw was that Christ is my righteousness and that I can claim his righteousness because he claimed my sin. He took my sin and I and offers me his righteousness by faith. And that righteousness is the righteousness which gives me victory. And without that righteousness, I have no victory. Well, it's been good to be with you again. Uh, and I see it's time for us to conclude our session. And I'd like to have you bow with me once more. Father, thank you so much for your many blessings. Thank you for giving your life to us. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ, which we can claim by faith, no matter how we feel. I thank you, Lord, for the life you've given to us and the life you have promised to continue to give us. I pray for your presence in our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.